I wonder how many minutes of this podcast has been edited out of just laughter. A lot. A lot? (laughs) We should release one that's just laughter. laughter. No context. Just laughter. In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. This week we are talking about social anxiety or social anxiety disorder. So we're going to have a good long chat about that. Before we do, I uh, my name's Hunter Morecare and I'm sitting here with Amy. Hi. Amy Donaldson. How are you? Not too bad. How's your cup of tea? Very good, thank you. Very good. Number two. Yes. Of the tea. Yes. <laughs> yes. It it actually is probably, I think about number six of the afternoon. I reckon tea resets if you're having it in the evening. Like you yeah. can start counting it again from yeah. zero. That's it. Yes. So we're recording this in the evening just to give context. So. Yes. So Amy will be having some caffeine sleep deprivation today. Uh, it's not too bad. <laughs> But before we do, uh, before we get started, um, we just wanted to remind you, if you're enjoying listening to the show, make sure you subscribe to it, and you can also leave a rating or a review on Apple. Yep. And you can also follow us on Twitter. We are at Two Shrinks Pod. We'll have to post something interesting. The, the, the podcast is interesting, Amy. Yeah, I know, but you know, something else to kind of, you know, remind people that we exist. Yep. Or if you uh, want to post anything that you think that's interesting, mm, yes, uh, tweet psychologically us. related, uh, or like an interesting article or something funny, please do. Mm. I'm always very interested. Especially if it's cat-related or attachment or dark triad. Okay. <laughs> no? No, this is a bit of the show that's meant to be quick. Right, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> On we go. <laughs> On we go. So... We're going to talk about social anxiety. I think everyone has a level of social anxiety. And in, you can definitely, would say, it exists on a continuum. Yeah. Yeah. Like a lot of people can identify with the idea of getting anxious about a speech, for example. Yep. Which could be social anxiety in terms of a disorder or it could just be sort of garden variety, normal levels of anxiety in an uh, anxiety-provoking situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there's sort of a continuum of social anxiety and then it kind of flips into social anxiety disorder, hmm. uh, which is abbreviated in the literature as SAD, hmm. which is kind of somewhat unfortunate. Yeah. What, what's interesting about social anxiety as, t- as a topic is it gives a good insight into the way in which psychologists think about anxiety, mm-hmm. the factors that drive it, the factors that cause it to be developed, and, and also about understanding about the way in which you can treat it and the different ways in which you can treat it. Yeah. Do you have much experience in treating it in children and adolescents? A bit in sort of like late primary school age ranges, so sort of like 10 to 12, 13, mm-hmm. when it, I mean, it presents reasonably similarly to, to adults in terms of sort of either coming across as shyness, sort of withdrawal from peers, things like that, anxiety about starting to having starting to speak in front of a class things like that yeah and i think it's quite one of my articles is around adolescence and it's that sort of thing of starting to be more aware of other people evaluating you so it sort of makes sense that mm, as you at that time develops enough that you can have capacity for abstract thought and, yeah and 
and you start to shift your focus to your peers and what they think of you and, and how you fit in. And, and also this idea of like you can imagine the perfect you. Yeah. And and then you never lived up to that. And so yeah. that causes mood problems. Or exactly. Anxiety problems. Uh, and I think you we were saying bef- before we recorded that it can present in, a, in different ways. So mm. the, the classic is being anxious or being withdrawn, but it also can be... You can be sort of overconfident, uh, yeah. very vivacious. Really bubbly, kind of fill the space so yeah. there's no opportunity for anyone else to criticise because yeah. you've made sure that you've kind of covered all the bases. Yeah, that kind of stuff. So, yeah. or, or, you know, or you kind of go to great lengths to be in control yeah. and you can be quite practised at it and people might not ever actually realise you're being socially anxious. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's quite interesting in those kinds of realms. I would say a lot of psychologists have a... A level of social anxiety. Yeah. I don't know why I'd say that. I just think that that's probably true. Yeah. I wonder if it's that kind of... um, That you're observing and evaluating social situations and interactions. Whether you sort of then become a bit self-conscious. Or maybe it's because we're not real doctors. Yeah, maybe that's (laughs) it. It's sort of an inferiority complex. (laughs) That's it. Um, It's also interesting... uh, I've worked... I've worked with people who have reported social anxiety, perhaps not a full-blown social anxiety disorder. And I once bumped into a client of mine uh, at an art gallery yep. uh, opening, just sort of randomly. And what was really, really interesting was individually with that client, one-on-one, incredibly confident. Mm-hmm. And I kind of had a very, very hard time sort of marrying some of the things he was saying about his anxiety and his experience. And then when I saw him in a group of people. Yeah. Then it was a, sort of in highlighted. In context, it was, it was, I was like, oh, right. I could see there was this, there was a, a shyness there and a kind of a, a, a reservedness there yeah. that didn't match with my experience. And it was a very, it was a great learning experience for me to kind of go to, to not always just assume that the person you're seeing in front of you is, how they are in the world absolutely yeah and it's one of those disorders that can be quite different in different situations like you can be quite comfortable with people close to you but then out in the world or at work or or vice versa yeah exactly so what i thought i might do is i might read through the criteria Mm -hmm. for social anxiety disorder is from the dsm uh the dsm5 just to kind of give people an idea of like what a disorder level of anxiety, social anxiety would be. Mm-hmm. So first criteria is that marked fear or anxiety about one or more social situations in which the individual is exposed to possible scrutiny by others. This might be social interactions like having a conversation, meeting unfamiliar people, being observed, so eating or drinking, or performing in front of others like giving a speech. So with children, the anxiety must occur in peer settings, not just in interactions with adults. Yeah. So, second criteria would be the individual fears that he or she will act in a way that'll show anxiety symptoms that will be negatively evaluated. So, it'll be humiliating, embarrassing, or you'll be rejected by others or offend others. Social situations almost always provoke fear or anxiety is the third criteria. And so, in children, this this anxiety might be expressed by crying, tantrums, freezing, clinging, shrinking... Or failing to speak in social situations. Yeah. Fourth one, social situations are avoided or endured with intense fear or anxiety. The fifth one is a fear of anxiety is out of proportion to the actual threat posed by the social situation. 
or to the social and to the social cultural context. It needs to last for six months or more, and it causes clinically significant distress or impairment in various domains of functioning, and then sort of the usual kind of things around. It's not caused by a substance or a medical condition, or it's not explained by another disorder. Yeah, that kind of thing. So. That kind of gives you level. So, like, most people would probably identify with part of that, but not yeah. all of it. Yeah. So, I th- always think it's kind of good to kind of get that in your head. Yeah. So, did you want to start us off? Yep, sounds good. So, the first article I had is called Social Anxiety and Social Adaptation Among Adolescents at Three Age Le- Levels by Peleg in Social Psychology of Education in 2012. Uh, so, as we were talking about before, this also kind of highlights that adolescence is a period of uh, really intense social development. So there's sort of a distancing from parents and then more of an emphasis placed on peers, whereas childhood, it's sort of your focus is far more on your parents. And social anxiety in adolescence can lead to a whole bunch of different issues. So, so it's related to self-harm, suicidal ideation, drug and alcohol use, difficulties at school uh school refusal is pretty common in yep. social anxiety as well yeah because you sort of said oh yeah oh, that person's socially anxious but for a child or an adolescent yep. their whole world is that social world exactly yeah prevent just is a barrier to so much yeah and in a period that's got a lot of change anyway yeah. and a lot of i suppose you know healthy levels of anxiety yep. <laughs> as well yeah so in previous research with young people, they found that social anxiety increases from about age eight, mm-hmm. but that it becomes easier to diagnose once people hit adolescence, so 12 and above. Uh, it becomes a little bit more clear-cut about whether it's about the social situation or just general anxiety or mm. what's going on. And they sort of talk about how social anxiety is related to social acceptance. So it's sort of maybe a self-perpetuating cycle where someone might not feel that accepted by their peers and then they start to avoid interacting with them, which then means that they feel more anxious when they're around them because it's sort of a more intimidating prospect, which then leads to sort of rejection by their peers because they haven't been around, haven't been getting to know them, that sort of thing. Mm. And it just keeps on cycling. So they were interested in looking at this relationship between social anxiety and social adaptation. Mm Uh, So they wanted to look at three dimensions, social anxiety, social adaptation and popularity perceived by classmates across three age groups. So they did it year 7, 9 and 11 in Israel. So adolescents at that age are sort of 12 to 13, 14 to 15 and then 17 to 18. They had 594 adolescents, Mm -hmm. so pretty... Good sample. Good sample. Spanning the three age groups. They got them to complete a bunch of questionnaires. So one was on social anxiety, as you'd expect. One on social acceptance. So their own perception of whether they were accepted by their peers. So it was things like how much they were included at lunchtime, um, how often people invited them to be a part of games, that Mm. sort of thing. Uh, Feelings of rejection. So how much they felt rejected by their peers. And then the popularity questionnaire where each person was asked questions about people in their homeroom who they'd prefer to spend time with for particular activities in and out of the classroom. Mm-hmm. And they had to rank three people. And then they sort of tallied all of those up for each kid mm. to get 
a rating. You're right. Of how popular they were, which I found fascinating as a methodology. Yeah. Like, it's unusual. You wouldn't normally see that sort of thing. And I suppose it's only what you could do in a school environment where you've got, you know, the majority of kids participating. The only other time I've heard some of that was similar, like, it was who would you invite to your birthday party? Yeah. For, for kids, school age kids. Yeah, similar kind of thing of tapping into those social dynamics. And so were they, did they look at, am I, I'm probably jumping ahead, but did mm. they look at who was popular and their social anxiety level? Yeah. Yeah, right. So they looked at the relationships between each one of those. Okay, great. Yep. Facets. In the youngest age group, social anxiety was positively related to their perception of rejection and then negatively associated with their sense of acceptance by their peers and their popularity rating by their peers. More popular. More popular, less, less socially anxious. Yep. More they felt accepted by their peers, less socially anxious. Mm-hmm. And altogether, it explained a lot of the variance for stats nerds out there, 0.53. Decent. So like 50%, Decent chunk. 53%. Yeah. In the middle age group, the pattern was the same, but the results were weaker. So the strength of the relationship between each one of those was different, was less. And then in the oldest age group, social anxiety wasn't significantly related to any dimension of social adaptability. Right. Which was interesting. So it's sort of if you looked across the age span, the social adaptability element was more important younger and then got less important so as all, got those, older. all those variables that you said for the younger ones non-significant and un- un- related for the older group for so the older group pop- 17 18 yep the other, what was uh, how much they felt accepted and how much they felt rejected all unrelated uh so they found that age was related to level of social anxiety with the younger adolescents reporting higher levels of social anxiety than the older ones mm-hmm. and so they talked about whether this was about the sort of developmental process that happens when you're sort of 12, 13, changing schools into a new environment, Mm. sort of starting adolescence, puberty, sort of changing the focus. All of the adults around you are kind of talking about how much things are going to change when you're a teenager. There's a whole sort of emphasis on shifting your focus. And a 12 to 13-year-old is very different to a 17, 18-year-old. Absolutely. Yeah. In terms of their ability to cope as well. Yeah, but also like I would say also in in terms of identity. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like, so, like, you know, your the sense of yourself as a 17, 18-year-old, I mean, yeah. it does change once you're older, but yeah. that's it's probably a bit more set in stone at yeah. that point. Yeah, you're far more of a separate identity, separate person than when you're 12, 13, and yeah. you're just starting that process of forming your identity. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then the younger ones also felt more reg- more rejected than any of the older ones as well. So they sort of proposed that this supported that self-perpetuating model of social anxiety where these young people felt rejected and then started to avoid social situations Hmm. and withdrawal that then made them feel further rejected and less accepted and sort of internalised that process, which made a lot of sense to me. Yeah, good good face validity. Yeah. Uh, So for the older adolescents... They spoke about a little bit about that kind of, you know, sense of yourself being more defined and that perhaps that's why it's not as big of an issue in late adolescence. And then they also spoke about how that there's sort of a less reliance on others and less need for an extensive social network in late adolescence. So, you know, people tend to have smaller, closer networks of friends, whereas in 
early, you know, early high school, it's more important to have this broad network of people that you interact with and getting approval from a broader range of range of people. Yeah, you don't want to be the odd one out in your class. Exactly. When you're in grade six or yeah. something. Yeah. But then when you're in year 12, you... You care more about the close people yeah. to you. And then they also spoke about how, you know, your focus switches more to romantic relationships. And apparently in previous research, they found that social anxiety is lower in adolescents who are in heterosexual relationships. So they're sort of wondering whether then your focus shifts to what your partner thinks of you mm. and that sort of dynamic more it than... much more specific. Yep. Exactly, rather than a broader fear of what's going on yep. around you in your social situation. So there you go. Mm. I thought, yeah. What an interesting study to start on. Yeah, absolutely. So the paper I'm going to go for, it's called Childhood Maltreatment, Shame Proneness and Self-Criticism in Social Anxiety Disorder, a Sequential Mediational Model. And it was published in Clinical Psychology and Psychotherapy in 2015. Mm-hmm. It's actually another Israeli study. Mm. The lead author is Ben Shahar. In it, they propose a conceptual model that attempts to integrate early experiences of emotional abuse and neglect with subsequent cognitive affective processes that are involved in the development and then also the maintenance of social anxiety disorder. So when we talk about maintenance as a psychologist, we're talking about factors that continue to perpetuate someone's mood or anxiety problem. And usually they're, they're the ones that you tackle first. There's all this like, you know, tell me about your mother kind of stereotype with, with therapists. But if you're really trying to make change in your own anxiety or mood problem, you need to look at what's currently affecting it now. Yeah. And then... What's like, keeping it going. Yeah, what's keeping it going. And then like later on, you can try and like work backwards. And, yeah. But so what they've found is that early experiences of maltreatment contribute to the development of social anxiety disorder and... This is thought to be through shame-based schemas and a sense of inadequacy. So schema is this psychological term around like a cognitive and emotional processing of information. And so it's like a schemata. Mm. Like, so it's same. like a yeah template for how you yeah. approach the world or approach a set of feelings. Yeah, or, and, and, yeah. and process all, yeah. all types of information coming into you, into you. So they talk about feeling inferior and different and that individuals with social anxiety disorder are primarily concerned that their perceived flaws will be exposed and that and this results in activation of highly aversive shame-based feeling so therefore what happens is they develop like a level of self-monitoring so monitoring about what's happening and then they also develop a a self-critical style and these things are viewed as like a defensive strategy designed to conceal their own flaws Mm -hmm. and with the ultimate aim of preventing shame activation. Yeah. Right. So you can seal what you feel is defective about yourself to prevent feeling bad about yourself. So what they point out is that self-criticism functions to limit harm socially. So like prevents, prevents you from, if you're always self-critical, it can kind of make you more cautious and yeah. perhaps stop you from embarrassing yourself. Right. But in of itself, it's shaming. Yeah. Right. And then as a result, it maintains this like sense of low self-worth. Or, Keeps on reinforcing that. Yeah, feeling. yeah. So yeah. like it might stop you from doing something in the moment. But then because you're always being self-critical, like the, the flaw that you have about mm. yourself or that you believe that you've got never gets challenged. Yeah. Right? 
So you prevent her from seeing yourself differently. And then this like drives self-monitoring essentially. So there's like kind of, you know, am I embarrassing myself? What's going on? This kind of stuff. So they draw a link to between certain parent behaviors and feelings of shame and uh, in what will be alarming news to parents with young children, <laughs> they found that like that these memories are strong, like yeah. shame-based memories are strong and share similar characteristics to trauma memories in that they have flashback yeah. elements to it, they're intrusive, and that we will avoid triggers of those memories, which is really, yeah. really amazing. And... Uh, central in one's life and it can lead to people sort of avoiding them as, and then this can be set central in your life essentially mm. like drive a lot of stuff so later on in the article they found some artic- uh, examples of it so I thought I'd just share them at this point it was like so this is like parent blaming mm-hmm. and also indirectly parent ignoring yep of children has strong associations with shame proneness and that, that that's a stronger association than say parents who are blaming or attacking yeah So, yeah. It's interesting because earlier on, the majority of the research was focused on, I guess, things like physical abuse, sexual abuse, stuff like that, that like the detrimental effects of that. Mm. And then more recently, there's been more and more focus of kind of like the sort of either emotional abuse, but even just sort of like neglect and those kind of less than optimum kind of parenting and the impact Yep. of that it's yeah. really interesting the and kind I, of shift and kind of and going how sensitive we can be to our environment yeah what we I, take in and actually you can experience a traumatic event or a negative event and if the parental or the caregiver response is good yeah then the impact of that event can be markedly Different. diminished yeah and so, whereas if you have, say, someone who has a traumatic event, like something sort of abuse or something, mm. and then the parent is makes them feel shame, sh- ashamed for whatever reason, mm. like you now that can be directly or because or the parent indirect, like inadvertently does that, then that shame bit will be the really really damaging bit, yeah. and the, the really really difficult bit to shift in therapy, mm. and so. That's always a really, really interesting thing. So these can result in shame schema. So this like perceiving self to be inferior or deficient compared with others or that social status can be lost easily, which I think is kind of an interesting and unique Mm. component of it. So individuals with social anxiety disorders result of feeling inferior or deficient become overly focused on their social rank and then tend to view their social world in terms of hierarchies. So constantly evaluating who is inferior or who is sort superior. Of where they sit in the pecking order. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so feeling inferior in social situations elicits submissive, appeasing behaviours such as avoiding eye contact, appearing timid, avoiding assertive claims and demands, blushing, speaking with hesitancy. And this like, so this idea is that that person is trying to show that they're not a threat yeah. to others, right? What's interesting that in social situations, these behaviours are not attractive, mm. unattractive behaviours. And these behaviours then prevent people from engaging with others. Yeah. And actually then perpetuate one's own unattractiveness and lower social rank. Yeah. So basically the compensatory behaviour that someone does because they're anxious then actually brings about the thing that they're afraid of. Yeah. 
So it was a little side note. Yeah. A while ago, I did a group for social anxiety and a big focus was on those kind of safety behaviours. Yeah. It was interesting because we, you know, we get people to do a role play with a person who didn't know what their safety behaviour was and get them to exaggerate it and do it to an enormous kind of overblown extent mm. um, and then get them to drop it and do none of the safety behaviour mm-hmm. and notice the difference in their interaction. And the people in the group who had social anxiety were legitimately shocked that how different it felt from one to the other. Mm. And it was only a, you know, four-minute exercise, mm. but they hadn't realised just how much the safety behaviour got in the way. So there were things like, you know, one person would always play with their earrings or mm. another person would have their hair over their face so that they mm. sort of shielded their expression, that sort of thing. Mm. And they were amazed at how much they picked up when they dropped dropped that behaviour. Mm. It's quite interesting just how... And did the partner give feedback as well? At the end, yep. Yeah. Gave feedback after the group member sort yeah. of said how they found it. Because mm. this kind of point ties into something that I find very, very interesting and it, it can be a little bit challenging for me as a therapist and also for my clients to have mm. a discussion. But it's one of the best questions I can ask a patient is to say, what is it about you or what is it that you do that perhaps causes this problem mm. or contributes to the problem? Yeah. And if you are seeing a therapist or you, you think about some kind of anxiety or mood problem, like it's a really interesting question to ask yourself, what is it that you do? And so, I mean, an example for my own thing is like I work in a, a hospital with very, yeah. very, very, very intelligent doctors and stuff. And this is an example I use with my clients. It's a true example of like I noticed that I was anxious around them and then and I noticed that one of my patterns of behavior would be I would often just go and chat to them when they were you know, doing their work and kind of, ask them something kind of you know like a question about medicine yeah and and then like i think at its core was like kind of like me kind of like going to check in to still think that like did they think i was okay yeah did they think that i was smart yeah but what was interesting was it was probably eliciting these kinds of like why is he asking me this question i'm really busy like what's going on why is he bothering me why why is and so like and so i picked up this pattern so i stopped doing that just as an experiment good psychologist i am (laughs) And then notice that the relationships I had with the doctors was unchanged, if not better. Yeah. Right. And so, I mean, and that's a classic, like, psychological intervention that you would do. I mean, I just did it on myself. And it's often the thing with safety behaviours is that they kind of, they start in a way that you think will help. But is it often... But often then... Then they they don't. they, They don't. They either do the opposite or they're just not so much effort goes into the safety behavior yeah or like way. or like you d- you probably don't even remember it starting yeah right like yeah. there's a back onto that super the superstitions that we yeah. talked about on one of the podcasts earlier like that you like it just sort of starts doing it and then you kind of keep doing it and then because that's what you've always done yeah yeah that kind of thing so mm. it re- really really interesting mm. so <laughs> let me get back to it so so back onto these shame schemas they core beliefs or schemas kind of stick around even though they sound maladaptive they sound awful but in this case they serve to signal to the person that their social rank is at threat it's sort of like for example like you know be careful in this situation or you could be exposed yeah and 
also to signal to others that you aren't a threat. A threat. And so that's why they kind of stick around. Mm-hmm. So these authors, they sort of saying, well, you know, look, they think because shame events from childhood are aversive or awful, people with social anxiety sort of self-monitor and then are self-critical as a way of keeping themselves safe mm-hmm. to con- conceal these perceived dif- deficiencies and prevent from feeling shame. That's, that's the model, right? And so basically, you know, you develop a strong critical voice to prevent yourself taking social risks. You know, for example, you must... Over-prepare for your talk so no one knows you're stupid. Yeah. And what that happens is that prevents full exposure in a social situation, right? Or people will be critical of themselves post a social event. Mm-hmm. So they'll go through the social event and then afterwards, oh my God, I was so stupid. Why did I say that? Why did I say yeah. that? Yeah, there's a lot of sort of replaying what happened in the yeah. social event and criticizing what happened or trying to figure out what yeah. happened. And so what's interesting is like, so a real marker is if you, if you're someone that does that or someone who you know does that, what they will do is they will apologize the next time they see somebody yeah. like sort of unannounced, like they're kind of like the, the way, like, you know, you'd be like, Oh, it was really, really good. And they, oh, you know, I was really, really sorry about blah, blah, blah. And you're like, what? Yeah. Like, so if, if you have that interaction, that's, that's what you're doing. Yeah. So the, the intervention would be, don't apologise and see what happens. Yeah. See whether you still remain friends with these people. Mm. So the authors want... So, that, I mean, it sounds like a very, very nice tight model. They just wanted to test this, right? The link between childhood maltreatment and social anxiety symptoms runs through shame proneness mm-hmm. and self-criticism. Okay. Right? So, 219 Israeli students, 109 males, so basically 50-50. Online study, five bucks for their time. The age range was like 18 to mid-60s. Okay. Mean age was about 38 years, 39 years. They had measures of childhood maltreatment, shame proneness, self-criticism, social anxiety symptoms, and depressive symptoms. Mm-hmm. Lovely regression models. Nice. You, you would have... They were, they were so handsome. You would have loved them. Yeah. There were boxes. Ugh. There were arrows. Yeah. There was... Was everything was, evenly spaced? There was... An, oh, so evenly spaced. Nice. The font was good too. Ugh. You know, like it was good. It was, it was very, very clear. <laughs> so... <laughs> what they found was that there was a significant indirect path from emotional abuse, mm-hmm. but not emotional neglect. Okay. Uh, and that, that predicted social anxiety symptoms and that, as they suspected, ran through shame proneness and self-criticism. So the model, as they proposed it, was essentially supported. Yeah. So they talked about that experiences of being shamed and rejected as a child are encoded and it's remembered as strong emotional memories that affect current self-views. And, you know, and, and so they had this, like, idea that, that this idea that self-criticism functions as a protective strategy against feeling shame was supported. So basically emotional abuse to shame proneness to self-criticism mm-hmm. to social anxiety. Yeah. So A to B to C to D. Yeah. Right? If you're mentally trying to, if you're listening at home. People who are socially anxious are self-critical and often perfectionistic in order to be to to prevent themselves from being exposed. Yeah. And so as a result, they will often people won't pick up that they're socially anxious. And then as a result they don't they never would never get the support. Yeah. Whereas actually one of the interventions I would suggest to someone say is tell someone you're socially anxious. Mm. To tell someone you're worried about being in this situation. Yeah. Because that would take take reduce that perfectionism. That reduce yeah. that self criticism, that kind of thing. 
I'm getting into treatment. <laughs> uh, emotional neglect wasn't predictive of shame mm-hmm. or criticism or self-criticism, but it was generally of social anxiety. Okay. So they're talking about I mean, emotional abuse is associated with this subordination, mm-hmm. and that's why it would be linked with shame or self-criticism. But neglect is about a failure of a caretaker to meet a child's needs. Yeah. And so that might indirectly provoke shame. So that would be like you blame yourself for your caretaker's neglect. Say, oh, there's something Mm. wrong with me. That's why they didn't look after me. Mm. Rather than kind of like, oh, my God, they're berating me and I should feel bad about it. I did something wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So just to wrap up, they talk about targeting shame and self-criticism in treatment. And they talk about using strategies to confront abusers in imaginary confrontations with the shaming attachment figure or peer. So the way... They suggested, and the way I've definitely done it in therapy with people is you would use the empty chair technique. Mm -hmm. So basically, you get two chairs, patient sits in one, other one's empty. You get the patient to talk to the particular person and tell them how you feel Mm. or how they feel. People find this really, really challenging. And so as a therapist, you stand next to them or behind them and feed them lines to get them going. Yeah. And it's a, particularly for someone who's never expressed that, it can be really, really important and really, really helpful because it can access adaptive anger. Mm-hmm. Basically, it transforms the feelings of shame, which is kind of like anger internally directed yeah. to, to external. external. Yeah. And so you get a shift. Mm. People don't also, like the problem is that you also feel very upset. Yeah. So, so you need to, as a therapist, need to be mindful of the way you do it. But it, it, in some cases, it can remove a, a, a blo- an emotional blockage mm. and the shift can be amazing. They also talk about exposure techniques, so like to reveal authentic parts of yourselves and so rather like sort of saying that therapy should be trying to get people to help people show who they are yeah. rather than to stop them from feeling anxious in social situations, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's kind of like a subtle difference, but they – so basically to reveal – this self aspect, this shame structure and, and then a, a challenge it and address it. Yeah. If that kind of makes sense. Yeah, it does. So yeah. lovely, lovely study. Very, very tight. Mm, interesting. Yeah, interesting. Mm. So the third article, Anger Suppression After Imagined Rejection Among Individuals with Social Anxiety by Breen and Cashton in the Journal of Anxiety Disorders in 2011. Uh, so similarly to what we've been talking about, that... You know, social anxiety is based on this fear of being scrutinized or rejected and that then to cope with fears of being scrutinized or rejected, people then engage in safety behaviors that minimize their anxiety, but they also limit the amount of information that they share with other people. So like you were talking about that kind of, um, you know, ways to keep your flaws or the things that you think you should be hiding back. Yeah. And sort of limit what's shared, which then reduces the likelihood that someone's going to negatively judge you for sharing that part of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. They talk about how expressing strong emotion is a really powerful communicator of, of information about yourself and that expressing anger tends to evoke some kind of response from other people. Mm. So that individuals with social anxiety might feel like anger is problematic and they need to hide it mm. because it's pretty much guaranteed to get a response from someone else and other people are going to think something about you from how you express that anger. Yeah, fear to judgment to all sorts of stuff. All sorts of stuff. Previous research has shown that people with social anxiety tend to experience more frequent and intense anger than people without any sort of diagnosis and 
people with other types of anxiety and that they have greater anger in response to negative evaluation, poorer anger expression skills and greater anger suppression. So there's a a big correlation between social anxiety and anger suppression of 0.49. That's pretty sizable for psychology. Yeah, absolutely. So they highlight that suppression of emotion doesn't always occur in social anxiety, that there seems to be a couple of reactions to social threat that for some people they're sort of avoidant and unassertive and submissive and they tend to suppress Mm. anger and then other people with social anxiety might be more mistrustful and hostile and angry so Mm. it's more of that kind of you know going on the attack before someone can attack you well i think of avoidance or approach yeah exactly the the dimension the continuum in my head yeah yeah and then with chronic social anxiety there's then fewer social connections and less chance to sort of interact with other people and the people then just start to interpret ambiguous social information in a negative or threatening way. So the interactions that they do have tend to then feel more negative or feel more judgmental. Mm -hmm. And so then people are more vulnerable to feeling rejected and angry. Yeah. Yeah. So they also talk about how experiential avoidance, which I think we've spoken about before Mm. on one of the numerous podcasts, can't remember which one, somewhere in there, but that that people can also have a trait of tending to avoid negative situations, negative emotions, things like that. And so there's sort of three parts to this theory of tendency to avoid any kind of negative situation, tendency to suppress anger, and then social anxiety. And mm. they were interested in looking at the relationship between the three. It sounds like it would fit together, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, whether that sort of tendency to avoid all negative situations has some kind of a mediating role. Yeah. You know, so they're interested in that relationship. And then they're also interested in how and when individuals with social anxiety suppress their anger in response to rejection. Because they kind of identified it doesn't happen across the board. So what is it that's happening when people do suppress that anger? Yeah. So they had 170 undergrad psych students, uh, three quarters were female. They completed questionnaires, so demographics, social interaction, anxiety, scale, and anger, state trait, anger, measure, Beck depression in- inventory, and then um, an acceptance and action questionnaire, which was on the experiential avoidance. Mm-hmm. And then they were assigned to either a calm or an anger inducing condition. So they participated in what was called an emotion priming task. So in the anger condition, they were asked to sit down and write an open-ended narrative about a time when they felt incredibly angry. And then in the calm condition, they had to sit down and write about a time when they felt really calm. And then they went off with a research assistant and were asked to listen to a series of vignettes about three everyday experiences of rejection. So each one had two parts. The first part was quite ambiguous mm. um, and just described something quite neutral, like running into people on the street that you knew. And then it paused and they were asked a series of questions and then they were provided with one of two alternate endings. So one the scenario ended in rejection and one where it didn't end in rejection. Mm-hmm. So we ended up with four yeah. groups. Two so in, yeah, two in the two, yeah. Yeah. Anger rejected. Anger not rejected. Yeah. yeah. So come, come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they're asked about their level of anger 
after each part of the vignette and how likely they were to express anger if they were in that situation. And they were asked about multiple types of expression, so whether they would, you know, shout at someone, tell them they're angry, physically mm. show they're angry, that sort of thing. Because the expression of anger is very idiosyncratic. Yeah. Like, so for someone to... For some, for some people, the way you would know that they're angry is that they're yelling. Yeah. For some people... It's silent. It might be that, you know, they sort of have a snippy comment. Yeah. Or for some people, like, you might not even realise that that comment or that action was them being livid. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's really, really fascinating. Absolutely. It can vary so much within... Yeah. Within people, and, yeah. and and it's really interesting when you join another family or see mm. fam like coming to a different family that from your family of origin, yeah, and see the way it and and then pick up on that and yeah. kind of, and then someone go, oh, geez, she was angry, and you're like, I didn't even realize that, yeah, but yeah, so yeah, because each family tends to have its own rules about how. About the emotions of, expressed, but particularly yeah. anger, yeah, particularly yeah. very much anger, yeah. So then they were also asked to rate their level of experiential avoidance at that time as well. So after the first part and the second part, mm-hmm. they also rated how realistic they felt each vignette was. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Check. Yep. That's a check. And then they were debriefed at the end of the study. Yep. Sort of bring them back to baseline. <laughs> so um, in terms of results, they found that participants in the conditions with rejection reported significantly more anger than those without rejection. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, they found no difference in the conditions of anger primed or not primed. So that made no difference whatsoever. They found that social anxiety was positively correlated with state anger, trait anger and anger in, which is the tendency to keep anger inside Mm -hmm. and not express it yeah Uh, it was also positively correlated with vignette anger and with anger suppression Mm. and it was correlated with the trait of having experiential avoidance but not each individual vignettes experiential avoidance yeah so they wanted to test whether social anxiety was a predictor of anger towards the vignettes and the experiential avoidance that occurred after feeling rejected and they found that social anxiety significantly predicted anger and experiential avoidance after rejection so the more socially anxious you were the more you had anger and avoidance after mm. hearing about an incident of rejection and yeah so you were, more, you were you were more triggered by rejection yeah. absolutely yeah They also looked at whether experiential avoidance moderated the relationship between social anxiety and anger suppression. Mm -hmm. And they got a result that was different to what they expected, which was that individuals engaged in high levels of anger suppression regardless of their level of experiential avoidance, but that it was related to social anxiety. So it was more about that than the overall experiential avoidance. Yeah, so, 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 yeah, so, so the anger suppression was more related to social anxiety yep. than to experiential avoidance as a global construct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they also found that people who were low in social anxiety and in experiential avoidance had less anger suppression. So these people seemed to be able to express their anger more functionally. They didn't have to suppress their anger as much, which mm. kind of makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I found it quite interesting because I think in my work with social anxiety, I haven't, I've seen anger, but not expressed anger. So that's mm. why it kind of, you know, sort of anger bubbling under the surface, but 
certainly seen that suppression side think, of things. But also, also, I think that that depends on the kind of therapist you are. Yeah. I think that some therapists are much more comfortable working with anger. Yeah. And, you know, that would speak to the way that you've been trained, but also probably your family, your, the therapist's family of origin. Definitely. Yeah, and I certainly, like, in the work that I do with cancer patients, like, a lot of people are spending their time pretending that they're not angry about the yeah. situation. And helping someone helping someone to kind of say, you know, this this effing sucks. Yeah. And kind of getting them to say it, you know, with, with a level of intensity. Have you had that with social anxiety or just in general? Because I reckon it's different. In, I think... I, I think well, at least my experience has been different, that clients who have been angry but kind of suppressing it about other stuff, mm. they've come out with it. Mm. But it's been harder for the ones with social anxiety to... I can't recall. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, I think you... I, I think there's... There, it's buried there somewhere. Mm. So, like, I, I could imagine that if you did a lot of work with somebody and then so say, you know, you were rejected when that happened. How yeah. did that feel? Like, yeah. what was that like? Sort oh, of elicit terrible. that feeling. And I was like, well, was it just terrible? Yeah. What was it? What would if they were here? We could. What, what would you really want to? What could mm. you really say? But the problem is they're anxious, and so they wouldn't want to show that anger. Show that out, and even to show that to a therapist mm. it's in a private a, room that's confidential. Yeah, it would still be. Very, it's a vulnerable situation. Very very vulnerable situation. So, and yes, I mean, I think you you wouldn't. Whereas, like the examples we met with cancer before, like you could push it fairly easily and you could get a result. Mm. But social anxiety, like you could imagine, you could push it with someone and then they wouldn't come back. Yeah. And because they'd be worried about the judgment of they would the be therapist. well, they would be flooded with shame. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So. Hmm. Yeah. So, found it interesting. Fascinating. Yeah. So the paper I've got is a 2017 paper published in Behavior Research and Therapy. And it's called Trajectories of Social Anxiety, Cognitive Reappraisal and Mindfulness During a Randomized Controlled Trial of Cognitive Behavioral Group Therapy Versus Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction mm-hmm. for Social Anxiety Disorder. Okay. So, complicated title. Actually tells you everything you need to know. Yeah. Uh, so, this is really interesting because it can... So, mindfulness is a is very, very in vogue very, very in vogue in popular culture and it's very, very yeah. vogue in psychology currently. Uh, There's lots of different versions... Of what mindfulness actually is. Of what it is, yeah. yeah. It's and used in all different ways, some quite structured, some quite unstructured. Yeah, and actually, I might actually tweet out a link to... There was an excellent article in the Washington Post mm. about mindfulness and kind of some of the shortcomings of it i'm a i'm i sort of sit i'm a bit of a skeptic yeah in terms of uh, about mindfulness and so this is what what like is in i think that there's a lot of good results with it but i don't think it's the the be all and end all so you wouldn't use it on its own uh or you wouldn't use it i certainly use elements of it yeah but this is, what's interesting is that mindfulness what people think of mindfulness varies yeah so widely yeah then I think it's a, a term that uh, almost loses the meaning. Thing. Whereas this is mindfulness-based stress reduction, so there's an actual program, so it's a bit different. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we should do a pod on mindfulness yeah. at some point. But what, what's interesting about this is that it's comparing CBT 
which cognitive behavioral therapy, which is known to be very, very effective yeah. with mindfulness and then looking at it. So l- let me let me get into my notes of it because I'm probably jumping ahead a bit. So they're talking about, you know, there's Hang a high on. life... Author. Oh, author is uh, Philip uh, Golden and colleagues. There's a whole lot of colleagues. So <laughs> hello to you, et al. Uh, the, so the lifetime prevalence is about 12% for mm-hmm. social anxiety disorders. Very disab- debilitating early onset of social anxiety disorder precedes subsequent onset of other anxiety disorders, alcohol and substance use, and major depression. Mm-hmm. So, it's, so you think, oh, you know, socially anxious, but actually it's, it's, it's pretty bad. Yeah. It involves this like chronically distressing levels of social fear, humiliation, embarrassment, yada, yada. It's known to be associated with significant functional impairment, poorer quality of life, suicide attempts, alcohol and nicotine dependence. Mm. And what's interesting about it is often untreated. Yeah. Like it's un- under-recognized, untreated. That kind of stuff. It's very Do you cute. feel like we've described enough around the sort of functional impairment side of things? What comes to mind? Well, I was thinking about people I've worked with who like have, you know, taken a, a job that they absolutely hated and that didn't pay their bills because it was the only one that they could get without having to attend an interview. Wow. Or people who have you know, pulled out of university courses or who, because they didn't want to do any speeches in class or, you know, dropped out of school or things like that. Like it has quite a, quite a significant, Mm. it can have quite a significant impairment if it's at that Mm -hmm. kind of level. Mm -hmm. And yet probably still not necessarily seen by people around them. Because in each one of those cases, they sort of explained it to the people around them in a different way, like... Mm. And oh, still this job isn't that bad. That, yeah. Still working, yeah. yeah that's the thing. Was it, was it where my mind goes is that people who flip the other way, so they're socially anxious and they develop a whole lot of ways of being perfectionistic in terms of the way they present. Yeah. And so they then actually become successful in roles that then require um, them to be social. Yeah. And so they kind of have this living nightmare of... Constant anxiety. Constant anxiety because they're constantly exposed to this thing. Yeah. And because of all the features we've been talking about, they never actually are able to resolve it. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it can go either way. Yeah. And so so people can kind of, you know, if you talk to people who might be a radio presenter or a lecturer or uh, musicians or stuff like that, like... You'd think, oh, you know, you've d- they've done hundreds of shows, but every single time yeah. they're like freaking out. Mm. Uh, so it's quite interesting. It is. And yeah. So I'm going to describe cognitive behavior therapy for social anxiety. And then I'm also going to talk about a little bit about mindfulness. So CBT for social anxiety disorder is considered the most e- efficacious and effective so- psychosocial intervention. The theory is it trains people to implement cognitive restructuring of maladaptive beliefs and interpretations about social settings within a session or within in vivo exposures, which is kind of like what you were talking about before mm. with the safety behaviors. So so basically cognitive restructuring of maladaptive beliefs and interpretations, basically it's like helping someone identify what's going on in their head in terms of thoughts mm. and emotions and helping them reappraise what's going on. So the example I often use to my clients is that I used to work in this drug and alcohol center and I was very anxious about how I was doing Mm. as a psychologist. That was my first job. We had this morning meeting, I was sitting across from my manager and she like looked at me and had this like sort of dour, sour face. Mm. And I had all these thoughts about what that might mean 
and you know like what you know with about you know she's not thinking I'm doing well blah 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 yeah and so I after the meeting's over I go up and talk to him like, oh, how are you going she said, oh I had the worst drive in <laughs> yeah right? and so the so your assessment of the situ- situation didn't match no no what was going on so, for so, her. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so like I internalized it and catastrophized yeah. and so and so, so you would be teaching someone to say like, all right, so someone just looks at you funny. Mm. Is it because of you or could it be because of something else? Yeah. Right. So that's, that's a very, very simple way of understanding it. So cognitive therapy, cognitive behavior therapy works by changing probability bias for negative social events. So mm-hmm. it's like this idea that like how often something negative socially going to yeah. actually happen. This social self-focus, which was what I was talking about before. Safety behaviors, which is what we've talked about before, like reducing them. Anticipated aversive social outcomes. So usually what people would do is they would anticipate the worst social outcome, right? Yeah. When actually it might just be really, really minor, right? So it might be negative in direction, but it might be like, it's, it's not like we don't want to see you ever again. It's like, oh, dude, that was a bit embarrassing. Like, yeah. Or even less than that sometimes, like a a slight misstep in conversation or talking over someone or whatever can feel like a complete rejection yeah. in yeah. social anxiety. That, quite... Yeah, I mean, I always think about like, kind of like, it's like a seesaw. It's like, yeah. it's really, really hard. To, so, a teeter-totter, I think is another way of, hmm. really like if you're American. And so, it's easy to stand on one end or the other. Yeah. And really what you want to do is to stand in the middle, mm. right, in terms of behavior. But if you're used to standing up one end then taking one step forward feels like you've run to the other end. Yeah. Right. So so any kind of being loose and less perfectionistic invokes a whole lot of triggers a whole lot of anxiety. So can I tell an anecdote that may or may not be relevant? Yep. First session of the social anxiety group, you know yep. how I'm quite clumsy. Yes. Yes. I walked in and I was standing there listening to my co-facilitator who was kind of introducing everyone and I managed to knock the shelf off the whiteboard (laughs) (laughs) and it turned out to be one of the most useful therapeutic moments. I, of course, flushed bright red, but it was this thing of going, okay, well, I might want to apologize about it like perhaps I would in another situation, but actually this could be a moment of going, you know what? saying to them, I'm really embarrassed, but we're just going to keep on moving through it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And just kind of, you know, do you all judge me for what's happening right yeah. now? And it, it worked out beautifully, but that moment of hearing it clang to the floor <laughs> still just sits with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and Amy, Amy sort of is sort of <laughs> shimmering, shivering down her spine. Yeah. Yeah, and, and actually that speaks to being a real therapist mm. and the learning as you get more comfortable as an individual yeah. doing being a therapist and learning how to kind of going, Oh man, I fucked that up. Sorry yeah. about that. Like kind of like, yeah, you don't have to be the perfect in control yeah. composed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And actually, and then you can actually use that. Like, cause mm. you can role model that and kind of go, well, you know, look, I screw stuff up, but actually we get there in the end. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Because and particularly for something like this or for yeah. pe- perfectionism or things like that where you kind of go it's it can yeah. be an issue if the therapist is perfectly and like i mean i can be quite challenging to my clients where i'll say well you know you saw me screw that up yeah but you keep coming back so why is it that you keep coming back yeah you know so let's flip that around on you and mm. talk about that for you like so yeah yeah interesting sorry continue interesting. just popped very, into my head yeah, no, very interesting so they in this study they're interested in understanding what therapy changes 
predict symptom changes mm-hmm. in patients. So essentially, like what mediates the link, right? And so this idea in research about therapies, they're always trying to figure out, okay, if you get a therapy that works, why is it working? Yeah. And which part of it is working, right? And so in the same way that you might get a medicine, someone might start taking a medicine or they've, they work out that people who do certain things have a higher incidence or lower incidence of an illness. Yeah. And then you try to figure that out, right? And sort of kind of work out what, what's the most effective part. You know, and there's lots of things that could mediate the link, you know, changes in maladaptive beliefs, avoidance behaviors, cognitive distortions, all this kind of stuff. So there's a whole list I'll go through. So they wanted to look at what changes in the cognitive processes results in decreases in social anxiety. What's interesting is about 40% of people who do CBT achieve remission from social anxiety. Hmm. So there's cancers that have higher survival rates yeah. like or remission rates than that. Yeah. And they also sort of point out that access to high quality cognitive behavioral therapy is difficult. Yeah, expensive. And expensive. And also people are really hesitant to try. Like, hmm. I mean, you can think of a, of a, a more <laughs> a more hesitant group of people. Yeah. I mean, you probably could, but like it's a classic kind of like they're socially anxious. Oh, here, come talk to this person you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like, Even like ring up a clinic, make an appointment yeah. with someone you don't know. Yeah. 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 And if you're a trainee therapist, don't be like, oh, it's the social anxiety group. Yeah. Hi, no. how you doing? No. no. Calm down. Calm down. Anyway, so one apparent promising alternative treatment is mindfulness-based stress reduction. That is uh, interventions that involve formal sitting. They didn't actually describe what formal sitting was, but... I thought that was kind of funny. Um, body scan, walking, meditation, mindful movement. They're talking about like uh, certain types of yoga and brief and formal mindfulness practices. Uh, can I tell a mindfulness funny sure. story? Sure. <laughs> so I was at a conference in Turkey and they're talking about mindfulness and using that with cancer patients. And so as part of that, we had to do a whole lot of mindfulness exercises. Mm-hmm. And one of them was to is basically essentially just to walk really slowly and just notice. I'm familiar. Yep. Yeah, like to notice the feelings, you know, the feelings in your shoe and in your leg and in your in your body and just do this for like a couple of minutes. Like, And so we're doing this in this resort yeah. that's by the sort of the, the Mediterranean and it's this uh, resort that's full of, Russian tourists and so we're like walking on this like smooth marble yeah and then I look up to see like some of my some of the other people in the course just like wetting themselves laughing because we were walking past this like glass wall and there's all these like tourists in this swimming pool like just having a crazy time and like and we're all like in like suits and stuff like walking really really slowly <laughs> psychologists we know how to have fun no question <laughs> so and it one other part of mindfulness-based stress reduction is like focusing on developing mindfulness and acceptance via a variety of meditation practices. So mindfulness-based stress reduction has very little overlap with CBT. Mm-hmm. No cognitive restructuring, no exposure to feared circumstance, circumstances. But both of them result in awareness and understanding of one's own thought processes, mm-hmm. right? Because you're in mindfulness, you're becoming aware. You're stopping and you're becoming aware of what's going on in your head. Yeah. So it's thought to enhance present moment 
awareness of thoughts, emotions, sensations, and then sort of engender attitudes of acceptance and non-judgment and curiosity about your experience. It, it runs a little bit in contrast to CBT, which CBT is very much like, okay, what's going on in your head? Well, let's examine that yep. and let's challenge it. There's, there's, there's kind of like a... There can, there can be quite a judgment element to it. I mm. mean, depending on your style as a therapist. Yeah. Whereas like mindfulness is a bit more like, okay, so what's going on in your head when that happens? Mm. And that kind of stuff. Now, I'm not saying every CBT therapist is like that. No. But if you read particularly like strict CBT texts, that's yeah. the way it can come across. Yeah. So it's kind of it, quite, quite a different way or can be. In terms of evidence, initial evidence that mindfulness-based stress reduction programs may be as effective as CBT for social anxiety disorder. Mm-hmm. But there's methodological problems like small samples, lack of control groups. And so there's like limited confidence about these findings. So similar to the CBT group, they wanted to understand the mechanisms of change over time and look at how effective it was. Mm-hmm. So that's the setup. So they essentially they wanted to test whether changes in cognitive reappraisal in CBT or changes in mindfulness predicted subsequent changes in weekly social anxiety. So they looked at this in two groups, one completing a 12-week CBT course or one completing a 12-week mindfulness mindfulness stress-based reduction course. Mm -hmm. So just to explain that, that would be changes in cognitive reappraisal in the week prior would then predict a decrease in social anxiety in the next week. Yeah. And, And the same for mindfulness, right? So screen patients for social anxiety via clinical interview, they had 36 in a CBT group. 36 in a mindfulness-based stress reduction group. They have 36 weightless controls mm-hmm. that they then split in half and then added, and then got them to do it either one of each of those groups. Okay, right? yep. And so added them to the data later on. So they've, kind of, so they've got a control and mm-hmm. a comparison. So really, really nice study. Each group was 12 sessions, two and a half hours. CBT, the main kind of thing... This is started off with psych- psychoeducation orientation, cognitive restructuring skills, training exercises and practice, graduated exposure to feared social situations within session and as homework, mm-hmm. and then relapse prevention and termination. Yeah. Right? Probably last two, three sessions mm-hmm. based on <laughs> our termination pod. In theory. In theory. Uh, the mindfulness stress-based reduction group was based on the work of Mr. Mindfulness himself, John Kabat-Zinn. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were given like a book and audio recordings to support ongoing practice. So there are a lot of results here. Sorry about that, but it tells a story. Mm-hmm. They found that both groups had similar trajectories of decreasing social anxiety during treatment. Okay. So no real difference. So yep. basically there was a decline. So both of them worked during both, the yeah. group period. Yeah, dropped similar amounts, 40, 40%, 43% mm-hmm. like of social anxiety dropped, right? So... And they found that the rate of the trajectories were highly correlated between two groups, like 0.97, okay. wow. highly correlated. Okay. So essentially no difference, which is really, really interesting. So they had three indicators of re- cognitive reappraisal and they all improved significantly during the cognitive behavioral therapy group mm-hmm. and also in mindfulness, right? Okay. So, but there was a greater improvement than mindfulness uh, than in the CBT group than mindfulness for disputing and reappraisal success. Makes sense because so. you're actively being taught those skills. Yeah. yeah. But you also pick it up in the mindfulness group, yeah. which is interesting. You pick up the kind of observing... Yeah. considering your thoughts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's exactly what I've written here, which is like yeah. that you 
observing one's own mental habits from multiple perspectives and learning how to modulate your relationship between thoughts, emotions, behavior yeah. seem to be common processes between CBT and mindfulness, right? So in the mindfulness stuff, they found that both the CBT group and the mindfulness program produced increases in mindful in weekly mindful attitude, but only the mindfulness one produced increases in acceptance and feelings of whether they were successful in being able to be accepting. Mm-hmm. So, and that, and that latter element is essentially unique to mindfulness, right? It's not, it's definitely not part of CBT, which is what no. I'm banging on about before. Yeah. So, but it's interesting that mindful attitude did increase for both groups. Yeah. And they're sort of saying, well, you know, actually both result in having a, you being curious and willing willing to have an attitude towards one's own thoughts, right? And that result was actually unexpected for CBT. Mm-hmm. They looked at what predicted the weekly change in social anxiety for each group. So for the CBT group, weekly appraisals, which is like a question of how often did you try and change the way you were thinking about the situation you were in and then appraisal success. So like, did you think that was successful? Yeah. Both of those predicted a drop in social anxiety the next week. Mm-hmm. But weekly disputing so how often were you disputing or challenging your anxious thoughts and feelings that that didn't seem to predict they seemed to think that maybe that was those disputing skills were learnt later on hmm. and so that maybe some reductions that occurred before so you didn't the link between it wasn't quite as strong okay essentially what they said is that they thought that this is what you would expect from a cbt model right for mindfulness, they, the reverse pattern. So reappraisal and reappraisal success were not related to decreases in social anxiety, mm-hmm. but disputing was. And so that was unexpected mm. right? and contradicts the current conceptualization of mindfulness stress-based yeah, reduction. So through having a mindful attitude, it might enhance the capacity to dispute anxious thoughts and feelings. So basically, if you're having a mindful attitude, what they think is that maybe you... Um, better able to regulate your emotion yeah. through different means, and then as and one of the things might be disputing stuff. Yeah. So like if you kind of are calmer, because that's what happens with mindfulness, mm. then or able to kind of slow yourself down, then you might actually be able to kind of go, no, hang on, that was a stupid. Yeah. That this thought's not that doesn't make sense. Or yeah. Or it doesn't make sense or something like that. Yeah. So that that was the kind of thing. But it's quite interesting. Mm. So when looking at the mindfulness measures. In the CBT group, none of the mindfulness indicators predicted social anxiety reduction. So CBT didn't work through changes in mindful attitude, acceptance, yeah. acceptance, success, right? Worked through the reappraisal stuff. But mindfulness, weekly changes in mindfulness predicted social anxiety reductions. Mm-hmm. So this is a question of like, how often were you adopting a mindful, open, curious, and willing attitude about your yeah. anxious thoughts and feeling? If that was higher, then your social anxiety the next Trapped. week was lower, right? Mm-hmm. But weekly changes in acceptance or acceptance success did not predict it. Hmm. So Interesting. Yeah, really, really interesting. So, it's kind of this really interesting like teasing apart what's going on with CBT, what's going on with mindfulness. Yeah. What I was interested in also was this thing about like, well, which one was better? Hmm. And it's sort of, they sort of seem to be equivalent. Equivalent, yeah. I mean, uh, I can't remember whether they did like a longer term follow up mm. and that would be interesting to see because just because you finish a course yeah at the same level as group the treatment a and treatment b does like, mean that the effect lasts yeah and mm. so and that's often something and it'd be interesting to see 
what that but so but it was just interesting to think about well what way these therapies do and don't overlap yeah and so i mean really you could do both um like or like you could do yeah. one or the other like if you're socially anxious you don't want to go see a therapist just try doing some mindfulness yeah right but you will actually if you go see a therapist it's going to be really helpful yeah if they're doing if they're doing cbt yeah it's interesting the the group that i mentioned before had a sort of meta cognition yeah. kind of approach yeah so there were elements of cbt but then there were also elements of that just observing yeah and i wonder when you're talking through those results about the sort of challenging aspect not being as helpful in cbt mm. i wonder whether being explicitly taught that evokes some of that judgment mm. self-judgment that mm. you then mm. kind of rather than going that thought isn't helpful you mm. kind of go oh, i'm an idiot for thinking that i wonder whether that's Whereas in the mindfulness one, you're not explicitly taught that, but you might start doing that yourself, whether mm. it's more about you driving that than yeah, being told. Oh, that's a stupid thought. Yeah. Yeah, and kind of like one of the things like people will talk about, that oh, yeah, CBT, CBT doesn't work for me because I realize that I'm having an anxious thought, but I still can't change it. Mm. And I feel stupid because of that. You know, and as a trainee therapist, I remember kind of running into that. Yeah. And, but often like, that means you're not challenging the right thought. Yeah. The intervention's right, but you're actually, the, it's like you're tackling the wrong bit mm. of, the, of the, the wrong thought process. Yeah. You need to be finding the, the one that's actually core, more core or something like that. So, mm. but yeah, it's interesting. And it they is. talk about that both CBT and mindfulness like develop like an awareness, like a, mm. this awareness of metacognition and stuff yeah. like that. So, yeah. Yeah, I, was, I thought it was really, really interesting. Hmm. So I'm a little less doubtful about the mindfulness in this. Wow, miracles tonight! <laughs> <laughs> but it might, mind you, though, like that's a twelve week, <laughs> twelve week course yep. on mindfulness. Yeah. Right. Like. So. I, yeah, I think there is a difference between something that's structured or focused, or mm. um, uh, compared to yeah, something that's open-ended and not specifically targeted to what you're going through yeah. or yeah. yeah it's it's used in all different ways yeah yeah it's problematic mm. so that's our uh, set of articles so should we we take a break we've got yes. some Ferrero shares we're going to munch on sounds good all right see you soon in the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things it's intuition it's intuition which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. So really, really quickly, if you're liking the show, please rate us or review us. Review us would be really, really great because that basically the reason we bang on about that is because the more people who rate and review us, the more our ratings rise in the we would have thought it and <coughs> more people will find the show yeah kind of stuff. or um and you can also follow us on twitter and as two shrinks pod nice and deceptively named and you know, email us if you like it retweet the show That'd yes be super. Uh, that would be really really great and or you can tweet at us with thoughts comments suggestions that kind of stuff or you can look at our website which is two shrinkspod.com or even if you want to go old school email Two shrinks pod at Gmail. You know what we need now? What's that? A PO box so that people can send us letters. Yeah, right. I love a good letter. You love it. I like the idea of having a PO box and yeah. just like kind of having a little key and kind of like going to the post office. I even have like a wax seal. I like letters so much. <laughs> what, was it good? Was it A? Yeah. Just an A. Yeah. 
it's it's so satisfying and used so infrequently. (laughs) I want your next birthday party to have that seal on it. Okay. Are we done? (laughs) I think we're done. Okay. Two shrinks pod. But as we try to widen and make more consistent. So we've been munching on Ferrero shares and we're back. Hello. Actually, I had one of those like coconutty Raffae. I'm not sure how I feel about those. Raffaello? How do you feel about them? I think I like them more than I used to. I do you think there's a reason why there's less of them in a box? I don't know. I don't know. But the, the dark chocolate Ferrero Rocher ones, is sa- there's the same amount. They've kind of got three of the dark. Three of the coconut. And then nine of the Ferrero. Which, let's be fair, the milk chocolate is the best. Yeah, that's it. Well, the coconut, I mean, like it's... Like, from like Zombieland, like mm. Woody, Woody Harrelson says, you know, it's not the flavour, it's the consistency yeah. that he doesn't like. <laughs> so, uh, so the last bit of the show, we talk about things we stumbled across. Uh, are you going to go first this week? I am. Excellent. My article this week is kind of an adjunct to last week's Uh-oh. articles. <laughs> are we sticking morbid or are we... <laughs> I, felt, I felt that last week... So we, we did the pod on vegetarianism. Mm-hmm. You did this nice one on songs, uh, earworms, yeah, and the psychology behind that. And then I talk about how. So and then I talk about an article that says that in July and August in America, when there's changeover of new doctors in hospitals, that there's higher rates of like complications and issues within and hospitals. Mortality. And mortality. Yeah. So you actually, I don't think mortality was one of the measures. I think it was just What's that? Other, That's just what I heard. Other complications. Just go to hospital and you're all yeah. going to die is what I heard from that <laughs> and article. I was, I was thinking about this during the week. It's like a current affair. That's kind of like it's, there was kind of a bit of a downer. It's kind of like <laughs> it was kind of like the the like the end of Empire Strikes Back. Right. Mm. It's just, this is a bit of a downer. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so you're going to continue that I'm not this going, week? I'm not going to return the Jedi from this. Like it's okay. Like, and then the other part of my thinking was I there's like a oncology conference that's been on COSA Mm -hmm. and people have to cover doctors have to cover other doctors who are going to these (laughs) conferences right I can see where this is going yeah right so so the article I'm going uh, talking about is uh, called mortality and treatment patterns among patients hospitalized with acute cardiovascular conditions during dates of national cardiology (laughs) meetings this 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 is this is is, it's not going to go where you think so it's published. In, How is it going to be better for them? It's published in JAMA Intern Internal Medicine. Sorry, in 2015, mm-hmm. and the lead author is uh, Jenna, and it's an American study. So the authors talk about that each year, thousands of physicians attend national scientific meetings. So in 20, 2006, 19,000 cardiologists and other healthcare professionals attended the American Heart Association annual meeting. Numbers declined a little bit in the following years, 16,000, 13,000 in 2009 and 2013 perspective. But that's a lot of doctors. That's a lot. Like yeah. a lot of people, right? And then there's other, there's another cardiology conference, annual meeting, similar numbers, right? So during conferences, physician staffing in hospitals may be lower than on non-meeting dates. And the composition of physicians who remain to treat patients rather than those who attend meetings may be different. Okay. Right? These factors may affect treatment practices and outcomes for hospitalized patients. Sure. Right? It's sounding terrifying, isn't it? <laughs> it is, except you're smirking at me, which <laughs> makes me think that it's not terrifying, but that if I was going to have a heart attack, I should have it when a conference is on. <laughs> right. So, 
Um, you know me too well, so it's ruining it for the podcast audience. So what they do is they... <laughs> do we need to wind back and delete <laughs> that? <laughs> no, no, that's yeah, so they investigated differences in 30-day mortality or just mortality amongst hospitalizations or those who were hospitalized with acute my- myocardial infarction, heart failure or cardiac arrest from 2002 to 2011, so a mm-hmm. nine-year period, during the dates of two national cardiology meetings okay, and then compared them with identical non-meeting dates before and after the conference, right? Mm-hmm. So basically, what was the mortality rate yep. when all these cardiologists were at conferences yep. and when they weren't? Sure. Right? There was a, and there's a looked at conditions that were acute rather than elective because, you know, uh, patients could be, have delayed care mm-hmm. if specialists are away, that kind of thing. They looked at teaching, non-teaching hospitals and low and high-risk patients. And they also talked about whether rates of specific treatments, so percutaneous coronary in, intervention, mm-hmm. PCI, I don't actually know what that is, whether the rates of tre- treatments like that varied and whether that could you know, impact on stuff like that. So they hypothesized that mortality would be higher and treatment utilization would be lower during cardiology meeting dates. Mm -hmm. A lot of results. I'm just going to stick straight to discussion. Yep. They found that substantially lower mortality rates amongst high-risk patients with heart failure or cardiac arrest when they were admitted to major teaching hospitals during the dates of national (laughs) cardiology meetings. Yeah. So, So in English, right, mortality rates for heart failure or cardiac arrest yep. were lower when the cardiologists were at a conference. Yep. So does that mean that we need to send cardiologists to conferences year <laughs> round? Yeah. Well, look, I'm sure they'd be happy with that. <laughs> so uh, they said that like PCI rates, that was the thing I was talking about before, were lower like for, for high-risk patients with with an acute myocardial infarct were lower during meetings without any detriment to survival rates. Okay. So they did less of this procedure, yeah, but survival but rates still. didn't change. They found no differences in mortality between meeting and non-meeting dates for low-risk patients mm-hmm. or in teaching hospitals or for high or low-risk patients in non-teaching hospitals. So there seems to be a difference between teaching and non-teaching. Yeah. They didn't seem to think it was due to delaying care whilst people were away mm-hmm. and patients were sort of seemed to be similar between meeting and non-meeting dates so they're like right this is not what they thought yeah but, but i think this is quite a surprise so they had a couple of things they said that cardiologists who remain at home while conferences on may be different to those who attend meetings mm-hmm. and so that might be relevant in a major teaching hospital and if diagnostic and procedural capabilities of these physicians differ. Composition and physician compositional changes during meetings may result in different patient outcomes, treatment patterns. Mm-hmm. And I also went to a doctor friend of mine. She was just saying that she was saying that you know, as a sort of a more junior doctor, she could often be more thorough in some yeah. cases because she's so you know concerned about getting everything right. Yeah. And 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 I think I've certainly read something uh, elsewhere where there's experiences where people who are junior might actually l- look at the guidelines more or do stuff Yeah, there's like stuff that. like that in psychology around risk that more junior psychologists yep. tend to be more cautious and pick up on more risk issues than more senior psychologists. Yep. Yep. So I assume it would be a similar kind of thing that you start to feel confident. Yeah. And 
and and yeah, so, or you might not be quite as up to date yeah. on stuff like that. So it's sort of some interesting kinds of things about mm. having someone who's qualified but not as senior. Yeah. Uh, whereas like you know the senior doctors, oh well, you know this is what we always do. Blah yeah. blah blah. Uh, they also talked about possible declines in intensive care. So during meetings, so even driven by so that might be because changes in physician composition or pra- and practice styles, practice styles, or say reluctance to perform interventions in patients when the primary cardiologist is unavailable or this like reluctance to intervene in high risk patients without adequate backup. And these might result in mortality reductions Hmm. and that kind of stuff. And they talked about sort of interventions that foregone during meeting dates are more likely to be those, or this is what they suggested, more likely to be those that are for which the risk benefit trade-off is less clear. Yep. And may involve harms that, outweigh the risks hmm. right so suggests a potential overuse of certain techniques in the population which interesting. Is interesting they sort of suggested oh, there's like a third thing of like declines in the volume of less urgent cardiovascular hospitalizations during many dates could allow physicians to focus great attention on remaining high-risk patients mm-hmm. but then they sort of say oh well we found no evidence that total cardiovascular hospitalization volume declined during the meeting date so okay. i wasn't quite sure i got with that one but hmm. they they said that the results echoed uh, paradoxical findings documented during a labor strike by Israeli <laughs> physicians in 2000 in which hundreds of thousands of outpatient visits and elective surgical procedures were cancelled, but by many accounts, mortality rates dramatically fell during <laughs> Nice. Yeah. 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 There you go. <laughs> well done, you. I'm going somewhere entirely different, as predicted. How do you feel about magic tricks? <laughs> uh, probably depends on who's doing them and who's the audience. Probably not so great. No. I feel like I have to be in a particular mood to... I think I just get frustrated. Oh, yeah. Like kind of like that, like I'm trying to figure out how they did it. Excellent segue. Yeah. So the article I found is called Explanations of a Magic Trick Across the Lifespan. Yes. <laughs> By Olson and colleagues in Frontiers in Psychology in 2015. Yep. Uh, so they wanted to use understanding of a magic trick to explore cognitive development across the lifespan, yep. as we all do. Yep. So they had a group of children aged four to 13 so, years. So like standardized testing doesn't... doesn't Irrelevant. No, magic. I thought you'd like this. <laughs> so they had a group of 167 children yep. aged four to 13, and then they had a group of 1,008 adults... Uh, and both groups viewed a video of a magic trick of a magician making a pen vanish mm-hmm. was silent and they could watch it as many times as they liked. And then they had to describe how they thought the trick was done and how confident they were in their response. Yeah. So they found that younger children gave more supernatural interpretations. So things like, you know, it magically disappeared those kind of things they more often took the magician's actions at face value so they thought that what they saw was just what happened the pen just disappeared and they felt more confident uh contrary to expectations confidence increased with age in the adult group whereas usually confidence is higher for younger adults Mm, and decreased Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah uh so most children tried to explain the trick but none of them got it right in fact, almost 
all of them were completely inaccurate. The younger children said it just disappears or the magician breaks it. They were also more likely to say it was magic, a superpower, potions, that sort of thing. The seven to nine-year-olds. I laughing at that? That's... I think it's great. I, I Like, I really like... I wish that I saw a magic trick and thought that the person had a potion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's essentially where my, my smile is coming from. Why why is this not okay? Uh, seven to nine-year-olds developed implausible explanations, like the magician had hidden the pen in his skin. Mm-hmm. And then 10-year-olds and older started to develop plausible explanations that were wrong. So things like a trick pen, hidden pocket, stuff like that. Adults also struggled to explain the trick with only 5% correct Mm -hmm. in the first guess and 9% in a follow-up second guess. Mm -hmm. Both adults and kids were equally confident they were right in the explanation they put forward. And men were consistently more overconfident than females. (laughs) (laughs) Seems to be a running theme somewhere. I don't know why. Yeah. Anyway, that's it. (laughs) That's it. That's it. So what was the conclusion or the... That you can judge cognitive development by looking at magic tricks. But you can kind of get insight into the way that we make sense of the world. And what was the insight that they got from that? Kids are into magic. <laughs> <laughs> Case closed. Case closed. What more do you need to know? Oh, God. Yeah. So, um, we, uh, we're going to wrap up. Yes. We are, for the next podcast, we are going to do what we did for the 10th episode. Which was a Amy's going to bring five eagles. I'm going to bring five eagles, and they're all going to be things we came across. Yep. So just grab bag of stuff. So it'll be hopefully really really fun. I think so. We enjoyed it last time. Yeah, we definitely did. Yep. So, and we will see you soon. See you.